retreat to find some freedom, hopefully, some kind of motivation around deepening our wisdom or compassion, our understanding, and uh, sort of a strange setup for finding happiness, just being silent and sitting still and walking slowly. And we're so conditioned, uh, maybe even just the way that our bodies are created, of this sort of external eyes facing forward and to kind of turn the attention inward uh, and to just pay attention to ourselves and all of the ways that we're wired to find uh, intimacy and connection and community and from outside of ourselves. This experience of solitude and internal focus and quiet, not, no... Uh, no feedback, but hardly any feedback from other people telling us that we're okay or not okay. Uh, and totally uh, relying. At the end of the, I talked about the first foundation of mindfulness this morning as our main practice today. At the end of the first foundation, there's a refrain um, at the end of each um, foundation where the Buddha says something like, having established mindfulness, uh, understanding the arising and passing, the impermanent nature of all things, then one lives independently, not attached to anything in this world. And... Um, Easier said than done, <laughs> for sure. To not be dependent on circumstances, on people, on places, on to, to and independent in this way, meaning we are fully responsible for our own happiness. The Buddha's dying words, as he was dying in his his people, his followers were sort of pressuring him to name a successor, sort of like, okay, who's going to be in charge now? <laughs> that human devotional quality of they want a boss. You've been the boss. You're quitting. You're dying. <laughs> and he, uh, the way that I read it anyways, he was almost frustrated at the question because these are supposedly enlightened people around him that, he says, if you ask that question, you haven't quite got my core teaching, which is to stop seeking an external refuge. Stop looking for the teacher to save you and be uh, a light unto yourself. And do the practice, follow the Dharma. The Dharma is your teacher, was part of what he was saying and that it is your own effort that's going to bring what you're looking for. He said, uh, continue with a steadfast commitment to your practice. 
And that is the, uh, the guide. And it's not outside of you. It's, of course, we have to learn the Dharma first. We have to learn about mindfulness and non-attachment and compassion, all of the things. We do need the instruction. We need, uh, hopefully, uh, trustworthy teachers to point out the path to us. But then it's about becoming independent, not dependent on teachers, not dependent on people, not dependent on but completely responsible for our own happiness. And when we come into retreat, then we really see how uh, hard that is and how dependent we are on attention from other people and distractions of the world and entertainment and sense pleasures. And we let that all go. And sometimes the first day of retreat, uh, is really painful for people uh, this first full day and seeing all of those ways that we're kind of, we are attached and we are uh, sort of suffering in, in coming into this boot camp and it really feels like heavy trudging, <laughs> really heavy lifting first day it can feel like that. I loved Wes's encouragement, like be gentle, take it easy, take a nap. It can be hard work. Other people sometimes find, and I've found myself sometimes, first day of retreat, like I'm kind of sleepy and foggy from my busy life. So first day of retreat can actually be somewhat pleasant because I'm not fully present yet. It doesn't get difficult to like day two or three because <laughs> the first day I'm sort of just uh, in a fog from the busyness of life and just returning over and over and over and over and getting caught in stories and thought and coming back and but I, uh, at some point, started to find those first couple of days of retreat, rather than annoying, actually kind of pleasant to be a bit, a little bit checked out still, not painfully aware yet. And so whatever your experience was today, I encourage you to think about today's practice as being perfect for you. And... Um, that you know, every time the mind wandered and you came back, that that was, that was your perfect practice today. And if you had a nap, that was the perfect time for a nap for you today. And if you uh, suffered a bit today, perfect suffering. <laughs> that, uh, and if you had a, a nice time and you enjoyed the sunshine when it came out and the environment and just sort of giving yourself the benefit of the doubt that you're doing the absolute right thing. And that whether it was pleasant or unpleasant, easy or difficult, that you're um, for sure in the right place and doing the right thing. Even though perhaps the mind might have doubted that, as it often does, and might have even tried to convince you to leave. Wrong retreat, wrong time, wrong tradition. I should just go like something more fun. Maybe there's a more pleasant way to get enlightened. Be so much better if Vinny and Joanna were there. Then my retreat would be easy. 
Noah and Wesk are kind of slackers. Whatever the mind makes up about why and how it would be better and why it's difficult and reflecting on this image of going against the stream from the Buddha and something that he, um, the, where, where it is in the suttas in the historical teachings is just after enlightenment, that he's struggling for enlightenment, he's struggling, he's searching, he's studying with these uh, different Indian uh, Brahmanic kind of Hindu gurus and learning some sort of concentration yoga meditation and he's doing the extreme asceticism and he discovers mindfulness and he's practicing and mindfulness is really the key for him to change his relationship to pain and uh, meet it with compassion and change his relationship to pleasure and meet it with non-attachment. Uh, it's really mindfulness, this quality of non-judgmental, present-time, investigative awareness that is the game-changer for the Buddha and leads to his nirvana, liberation, happiness, contentment. And then after that, uh, he's a little... The way that I read it, or my projection on it anyways, is that there's this sort of question of like, wow, I got here. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> a little bit of a surprise. How did, I, how did I get here, is the sort of tone of the uh, teaching, the inquiry. And he uses the Pali term, patiso tagami. He said, I went against the norm, against the stream, against the current both internal and external. I didn't settle for, you know, his early teachers told him that when he uh, mastered concentration meditation and was able to focus really, really deeply and ignore his mind, and, which is a very pleasant experience. If you get very concentrated, it feels really good. And you can dissolve the sense of self temporarily and... You're not aware of the clinging and the aversion. And he mastered that. And his gurus, his teacher said, you're done. <laughs> you're, that's all I can teach you because that's all I know myself. But he rejected that. Instead of taking the title and becoming the guru, he said, I have to be true to myself. I'm not liberated yet. I'm good at meditating. I'm good at concentrating. I'm really good at ignoring which is what concentration does for us. It allows us to temporarily ignore. He said, I'm great at that. But that's not the source of happiness and well-being. And he rejects that. He goes against that. And there had to be some temptation in all of us when somebody says, kind of like, yeah, I'm going to make you the boss and I'm going to... You're enlightened now. It's just what you want to hear. Like some enlightened, supposedly enlightened being say, like, you got it. And to be able to be true to ourselves as he was and say, uh, my direct experience is that I don't have it yet. I'm not free. I'm still very attached. I'm still very aversive. I'm not liberated. So he went against the norms. 
against the religious norm of what enlightenment was thought to be at that time. Not just good at meditation or at concentration. He goes on to say and reflect, and this is a teaching not uh, in the suttas, not that he is um, giving to a group of people that he's actually, it's just a sort of internal dialogue that he's having when he's reflecting on his liberation. He said, I went against the stream. He said, I went against greed and all of the forms of greed, the attachment to pleasure, attachment to praise, Attachment to success, attachment to sense pleasures, material goods. I went against, you know, so there's the greed. We, we hear the word greed and we think of the big, big greed, world greed. Greedy, you're a greedy person. But in Buddhism, it's much, uh, it's that. And of course it is sometimes that gross manifestation of hoarding kind of greed, hoarding wealth or selfishness but uh, also this points to just the greed for pleasure the attachment to pleasure the craving for pleasure that thought that I pointed to this morning or last night that says I would be happy if which almost is followed by something that's more pleasant than this <laughs> I would be happy if this moment, this life, this relationship, this job, this bank account <laughs> had more than it does, was more pleasant, was more full, was more uh, enjoyable. And that greed manifests in that subtle way, not just the big, And he said, this is one of the things that makes meditation and awakening and this path so difficult, a huge hindrance on the path, is this way that we human beings are totally wired for craving and clinging and uh, greed, that it's not a character flaw or a defect or a uh, shortcoming or something that, that you're actually doing wrong. <laughs> Uh, that you have those feelings and those thoughts and those desires. It's just um, the evolutionary survival instinct that wants pleasure. But it makes it really, but there's this strong stream of survival instinct that says, I want pleasure. I want life to be more pleasant than it is. I'm going to cling to the pleasure that I have, try to accumulate it, try to base my happiness on things feeling good. But we have this body, this nervous system where things just don't feel good enough of the time to actually equal up to happiness or real satisfaction. But the craving is unavoidable, is inevitable. We're just born with it. Totally not your fault that you had all of those daydreams today about what would make you happy. Your mind just does that all by itself. 
sexual desires, all of the craving stuff, totally natural, just being human. This is what it's like to have a body, to have a nervous system, to have a sensitive heart, emotional body, psychological. Of course, it's also the second noble truth, the cause of all of our unnecessary suffering is this craving. Craving for it to be different than it is. Lack of acceptance, lack of wisdom, lack of the ability to respond with compassion and with non-clinging appreciation. But isn't it such a relief to just normalize the whole thing? To just realize and just say, oh, what, it's such good news that it's not our fault. Such good news that life is difficult for everybody. Being born into this kind of a body, a human body, is just filled with craving and clinging. And they're just wired into us to want life to be pleasant in a world where life is not pleasant all of the time. Where you can't just come on retreat and there's sometimes in the first retreat or maybe for several retreats you think, oh, it's going to be so nice to be on retreat. That delusion, it's going to feel so good. Just I'm going to put everything down and no responsibilities, they're going to feed me. And this more craving, right? Even turning the retreat into another, like, that's going to be pleasurable. And hope, maybe, hopefully you come and retreat. I hope you get some pleasure and you've enjoyed the weather and the grounds. And, but it's just not pleasurable all day. It's just, it's just not. Probably. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe you did have pleasure all day. So he talks about going against the stream and basically against the human survival instinct that craves for pleasure, greed, that hates pain. To train the mind, even this basic instruction, present time awareness. Train your monkey mind, tame your monkey mind. It's a radical endeavor to connect and sustain attention in the present without the mind is just wired to plan to this survival instinct that's always looking ahead what's where's happiness where's love where's connection where's security you can actually if you when we watch our mind sort of see that it's so uh, much connected to this kind of like what am I going to eat or what's going to eat me? Survival instinct. Who am I going to mate with? How am I going to survive? Am I safe? Am I accepted? 
and this sort of old, old survival on the, you know, <laughs> Sahara. Who's going to eat us? Who can we eat? So in this path that leads against the stream, as we try to be mindful, of course, just mindfulness, training the mind, coming back over and over to the present, receiving the sensations, seeing the impermanent nature of things. Um, but he, he made a list of five things that make that difficult. He said in going against the stream and training in this way, um, I already pointed to one, and he's the the fifth the fifth um, hindrance, which he said often makes it most difficult, uh, or is the most dangerous, most most debilitating hindrance, is that of doubt. Is when you really start having the doubts in yourself, doubts in the practice, doubts in the retreat. Is this the right thing for me? That so that's considered the most um, dangerous or debilitating hindrance because it's the, it's the hindrance that will talk you out of continuing. That's the one that if you believe the doubts, if you really identify with them and you listen to them and you think that you're right uh, or your mind is right or your fear is right or your, and then it might be the one that actually packs the bag and goes home. And it was just doubt. And everybody has it, and it's, you know, how much we take it personally, how much we believe our minds. Of course, a lot of what we're trying to learn in meditation is not to uh, take the mind so personally, not to believe it. Even today, your main instruction, ignore your mind, but easy, you know, easy to tell you to <laughs> ignore your mind, much more difficult to do when it says, yeah, but this is a really important thought. He wasn't talking about this. Or the voice that says, don't believe them. They're trying to brainwash you. Or they're trying to, like, this is a cult. This is, like... All right, and sneaky, sneaky mind. Seductive. And the hindrance of craving, as I pointed to, the hindrance of aversion, makes it hard to sit still when your body craves for comfort. And sitting still for 30 or 45 minutes, you can experience some discomfort. And there's that survival instinct, that craving that says, don't just sit there, do something. Move, shift, itch, twitch, stretch, <laughs> escape this discomfort. You notice that today, that kind of drive to escape discomfort. Not very easy to just relax into pain. It's against our survival wiring. Or the thought I would be 
you know, happier if I was on a cushion, and then you get on a cushion, and you're like, no, I'd be happier if I was on a chair, and then you get in the chair, and like, well, maybe um, these chairs with the plastic black arms don't look as comfortable as those nice ones with the wooden arms. See if I can score one of those when someone's not looking. I'd be happier if I was in one of those chairs. And, um, well, what if I had a cushion or a blanket under my feet? Then I'd be happy. Just all of the ways that that craving for comfort manifests. And totally understandable and go for it. Like find whatever you can on retreat to minimize the discomfort. And eventually there is the acceptance that it's impossible to find a comfortable posture that's going to just always be comfortable. You're going to deal with some pain, and since we're not very good at dealing with pain, it, becomes, it makes it difficult to stay present, to stay mindful, to see clearly. We believe the doubts about it, the aversion to it. When we're really uncomfortable and we don't have much tolerance for discomfort, it can be a time when we really indulge in the fantasies, in the planning mind. Indulge in resentments, sort of lose present time awareness because it's better than feeling this. I'd rather be in the past or in the future than here in this uncomfortable present experience. So it hinders our ability to stay present and see clearly. But we can deal with the craving. We can deal with the aversion. We train uh, our heart-mind to sit still. Tolerate pain. Accept pain. Move towards compassion and mercy and friendliness towards pain. We practice letting go over and over, releasing. We see attached again, releasing, craving again, releasing, relinquishing, letting go. John Cha's quote from this morning, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go absolutely, you will have absolute freedom. And the still forest pool of the heart and mind. And I love that teaching and I love uh, the importance is that line of the strange and wonderful animals that will come to drink from the still forest pool. Because sometimes we have this delusion about if I meditate it's just going to be stillness and no thoughts and no emotions and no sensations. But what Cha understands, because the real experience in meditation is that when you have that kind of inner stillness, that there's space for everything and emotions continue and thoughts continue and sensations continue, but there's no hatred towards them and no clinging towards them. And there's an inner spaciousness, an inner stillness, but it's not the absence of thoughts. Thoughts are not the problem. It's how we relate to them. Sensations, not the problem. How are we relating to those sensations? Are we clinging? Emotions, never the problem. But our relationship to the emotion, and of course this is what the Dharma teaches us. Mindfulness makes a bigger space for all of it. The other two hindrances are um, restlessness. Maybe you experience some restlessness today, and again, that difficulty and just being slow and 
still and a lot of sitting. And that energy that wants to do something, that wants to be active, that wants to be engaged, that wants to be distracted. Sometimes actual um, anxiety arising around uh, when emotions, sometimes just you know, strong emotions are coming and there's that, I don't want to feel this anxiety. This is going to be too much, which that can be the kind of the multiple hindrance attack where there's uh, anxiety and doubt. Like, this is going to come up and I'm not going to be able to handle it. I'm going to freak out. Right? And it's doubting our own capacity and this sort of anxiousness around feeling what needs to be felt and healing and maybe grieving what needs to be grieved, letting go what needs to be relinquished. Or the flip side of anxiety that is... And so, you know, with all of the hindrances, I encourage you to just make friends with them as much as you can. Rather than craving being your enemy, uh, have a sense of humor about craving. And when you get into lust or when your mind says you would be happy if... You know, have a sense of humor. Like um, in recovery, there's that saying of um, like when somebody really annoying speaks in a recovery meeting you might say thanks for sharing in a sort of uh, sarcastic way so do that to yourself when your mind says you would be happy if you went home <laughs> just sort of have a sense of humor and say thanks for sharing mind <laughs> you'd be happy if you had if you had a lazy boy recliner for your meditation retreat and you could just totally chill, then you'd be happy. And you say, okay, thanks for sharing, because that part of the mind that's just confused, that's just craving, make friends with it, a friendly, tolerant, humorous relationship to how ridiculous our mind is and this body, this human experience. When doubts arise, name them. Doubting again. Oh, not supposed to be thinking. Come back to the breath. But name that. Oh, I'm really, this is strong self-doubt. I can't do this. I don't have the capacity. It's never going to work for me. And this is important that, um, oh, let me come back to the, the fourth hindrance is um, sleepiness or sloth or torpor, which we talked a little bit about this morning, which is, comes in, in two ways, and probably the physical tiredness when you're just exhausted is not really what the Buddha's talking about, I don't think. That's just you're tired and you need a nap, like Wes said, you know? Sometimes you just need a nap. I think that the torpor um, that, that the Buddha is pointing to as a hindrance is more kind of uh, a psychological avoidance or procrastination, that tendency to put off the work. Or, um, or even laziness, this sort of like, I just don't want to keep sitting and walking and not wanting to put the effort in. And that's different than just being sleepy when you're meditating because you're tired. I always think of the Wizard of Oz and um, Dorothy and the crew getting close to Oz and the, uh, the first time they're getting there and the poppy field. I know because I have little kids, so I've watched it again recently. 
and there's the poppy field right before the first time they get to Oz and it puts them all to sleep. And so like thinking of Oz as your nirvana, your liberation, or, and just before you get there, there's that you know, tendency to kind of maybe shut down, that there's something in the ego mind that feels very threatened by your liberation. The small mind that wants to continue the low self-esteem and doubt and fear-based mentality and feels very threatened and it just kind of says like, she's getting too close, put her to bed. <laughs> and you might even see that in your practice. He's getting too close, knock him out. You might even see that sometimes you're here and you're having, you're seeing impermanence and you're very present and, and all of a sudden, whoa, I wasn't even tired and I just went out. I didn't feel tired and all of a sudden I was out and just lost 10 minutes and then woke up again. And I, I feel like it's a little bit more what the Buddha's talking about is along those lines of that part of the mind that sometimes shuts down not just being tired from physical things. So the thing about uh, all of these hindrances and this against the stream trajectory and, and um, path that we're on is that the Buddha referred to the things that hindered him and the ways that he felt attacked by his own mind and body, by his lust and his fear and his doubt and his, all of the things that kept, keep all of us dissatisfied and, and stressed out. And he referred to them as Mara. He actually gave those experiences a label and then had this relationship with Mara um, and all of the ways that Mara manifests. And Mara manifests uh, at his enlightenment. You know, the story of him under the tree, and he's there, and he's, he says basically this almost suicidal uh, commitment where he says, I'm going to sit here until I get enlightened or I die. Like, this is it. Give me liberty or give me death. Very <laughs> American context to that, maybe. Give me liberation, give me independence, give me freedom. And he gets there, but just before he gets there, he's at Mara attacks the mind with lust. You'd be happy if you were much sex, sensual, sense pleasures, way better than meditating. <laughs> way better, you know, his mind throws that at him. And then his mind throws anger and hatred and violence, spears. You'd be happy if you could get rid of this pain, and he meets the pain with compassion, forgiveness, loving-kindness. And the last one Mara attacks with doubt. The last thing that Mara says to the Buddha before his liberation is, who do you think you are? Why do you think that you are worthy of happiness? And this sort of Comparing mind, too. And the, the Mara says, nobody's free. Everybody's miserable. <laughs> Just join them, but don't, don't try to be different. Don't try to be unique. Everybody's miserable. Be miserable with everybody else. Why do you think you're worthy of happiness, of true freedom from suffering?
And it's important that we see that even to the brink of liberation, Mara was there and doubt was there in the Buddha's mind. And I would make an um, argument or a, I would take a perspective that uh, even after liberation, Mara continued with the Buddha. He, he, he woke up and had the skill to meet the pain with compassion, the pleasure with non-clinging, no longer took that part of his mind so personally, didn't see it as self, as who he was, related to the mind rather than from it, to the body rather than as the body, as the identity. But Mara never went away. And you, maybe you know this already. It's been important for me to always reflect on that, that Mara continues even for the liberated one. Sometimes we think that like, oh, if I meditate enough, then <laughs> I won't have any more afflictive emotions. I won't have any more fear or doubt. I won't have any more lust or aversion. I don't think that that was the Buddha's experience. You know, there are certain schools of Buddhism who would take a different perspective and they want, they want the man to be perfect, right? He has perfectly enlightened. He didn't have emotions. He's such petty human experiences. It just seems like bullshit to me. Of course he did. Still had doubt, still had fear, still had sexual desire. Called it Mara, saw it, related to it. Mara was there the day after his liberation, the month after. Mara was there on his deathbed when he's saying, seek no external refuge. Mara's in the background going, yeah, finally, you're dying. Happy, I can, you know, I'm going to fuck this whole thing up and call it Buddhism. As soon as you die, we'll create a religion out of it. That'll mess it up. <laughs> Have people bowing to statues in no time, Buddha. <laughs> so it's sort of the good news and the, from where I sit, it's the good news and the bad news. I mean, the good news is, is that uh, we have the, uh, capacity to really radically change our relationship to the mind and to these things that we call hindrances to our emotions and our cravings and our aversions. It's actually possible and the Buddha did it and we can do it and this practice, you're in the absolute right place to do that and there's nowhere better than in silent retreat than to see clearly what's happening and change your relationship to it. You know, Maybe, maybe it feels like a it would be nice if there was sort of perfection around the corner and, um, you know, absence of doubt and absence of, you know, these unpleasant experiences. But it wasn't so for the Buddha. I just don't think it's what the game is here. And um, so maybe that's the bad news that you have to deal with this shit forever. <laughs> no matter how much you meditate. You still have to deal with your mind and its bad habits and your body and its cravings and attachments and preference for pleasure over pain. And, but it gets so much easier over the years. 
over the decades <laughs> of practice. Going against the stream uh, takes so much effort in the beginning because we've been just going with the flow for too long, satisfying every desire, believing every thought, indulging every craving that we think we can get away with it without getting arrested or <laughs> whatever it is. But we've just been going, believing it, and then to turn against, away from sense pleasures as the source of our happiness, away from materialism as the source of our happiness, away from and inward and against. Uh, in the beginning, it takes so much effort, is my experience. But it's important to have a slow and steady effort with our practice. Not, um, you know, you can burn out if you try put too much effort in. And so I think that there's that, like if you're going to swim against a current, you have to go side to side. You can't just get in the middle of a current and just go for it. You'll just burn out. But if you kind of go from side to side, you'll make some progress against it. Swimming diagonally, I think, is what they say. And that the practice is a little bit like that. Slow, steady, moment to moment, day to day practice. So after the Buddha reflected on against the stream, Patissa Tagami, and he formulated uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path as the way that, that leads against the stream and the way to liberation and this very clear and um, practical teaching of understanding suffering and the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, the path, the eightfolds or factors of the path to develop in ourselves. And of course, it's much more than meditation. Meditation is not the whole path, just a piece of it. About being wise and careful with all of our actions, with all of our uh, relationships. It's interesting that first he went and he converted his, uh, his old friends and he said, I, I found a better way than asceticism, a middle path. And then there were five or six of them. And then there were some um, wealthy uh, kind of business, business people, family, young men that came and, and ordained with the Buddha. And then there were like 10 of them or something like that. It was just this small little community. And then they came upon this, um, these large communities of hundreds of fire worshipers. And one of the, um, after the Four Noble Truths really is the first teaching, the setting in the, the second real kind of lecture teaching that the Buddha gives is called the Fire Sermon. And it's... Um, 
And it's this whole kind of fantastic teaching of, and I think of like our modern interpretation is like the Buddha and ten homies show up to Burning Man. And there's thousands of people, because the, the fire worshipers are these like drugged out, dreadlock uh, uh, guys, and their whole spiritual practice is like worshiping the, bur the fire. And they're just stoned, you know, sadhus, you know, like kind of their practice is to smoke hash and chant to Shiva and just be completely blazed and, you know, worship the fire and the weed. <laughs> and and uh, he shows up and he gives them this awesome Dharma talk about like, uh, yeah, it's the fire, it's the cave, but everything's burning. Your eye is burning with lust and greed and hatred and delusion and the ear notice how you prefer pleasant sounds to unpleasant ones and the body and feel the the burning in you rather than this external fire that you're stoking and really this internal fire and the extinguishing of that which is burning us our craving for sense pleasures our aversion to unpleasantness and I was just reflecting on how, uh, you know, there's all these wild stories about stuff that happens in the early Sangha around the Buddha, but you have to think of who his followers were. It was like, really, he went and converted, like, <laughs> us. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, there was all of this drama in the community and the Sangha all of the time because he had a bunch of, like, hippies and punks and Rasta, Burning Man, you know, art freaks <laughs> as part of his sangha, right? The core sangha was this very counter-cultural uh, group. And so I, f I always feel like Wes and I love to tease each other about the hippies and the punks. And, um, but actually taking this path is, is a very counter-cultural practice. Um, even it was in ancient India and it continues to be something that, of course, if you're somewhat already alternative-minded and engaged in uh, subculture activity, that something uh, like the teachings of the Buddha are, are most likely going to resonate because you see the practical, radical, and sort of subversive nature of what's being taught and offered and encouraged. And... Um, I just feel like we're the sort of modern extension, the against the stream crew or uh, the, you know, spirit rock kind of hippie crew or whatever it is as being the extension of the fire worshippers and seeing how this world is truly on fire with so much confusion and how our awakening, the practice that you do here in each mindful footstep and each mindful breath and each moment of loving kindness or compassion is extinguishing the causes of suffering in ourselves, in yourself. Slowly, slowly. And uh, the benefits that it has on the world. I believe always that it's important for us to understand that our practice is not a selfish one, it is not one of, um, you know, it's not self-help, but that it's solution-oriented and cultural transformation-oriented, but from the inside out, that we do our work for the benefit of all living beings. 
And sometimes when you're stuck in doubt, when you're wondering what you're doing here, when you're having a hard time, remind yourself of that, that this isn't just about you. That maybe sometimes our self-esteem isn't even strong enough to continue, or we say, I don't even care, I don't even deserve to be happy. And remember that it's not just about you. That this is actually ultimately about creating a positive change in our generation and for the next generations and establishing and continuing this revolutionary uh, practice and teaching and counterculture. The last thing that I'll throw out there is that um, this teaching that I like very much from the Buddha later after the Four Noble Truths and after the fire sermon and um, later at some point in his teaching career, he uh, was in conversation with somebody. He said, uh, he said, I didn't make this stuff up. I rediscovered it. He said, it's as though I was wandering uh, through the jungle in my spiritual practice. I was as though I was just sort of out exploring uh, the wilderness and the um, and I and I stumbled upon this long forgotten path. And I followed that path of mindfulness, of compassion, of forgiveness, of loving kindness. I followed this practice and this path and it led me to this uh, these ancient ruins, this forgotten city. And that I then uncovered and excavated and I went and told other people and got them to come and help me. And we uncovered and rehabitated, re rehabitated, Hab I don't know. We moved in. <laughs> Rehabitated, uh, whatever. And I like that very much because um, it's always felt like that to me when I discovered the Dharma and started practicing and, um, and that when people told me that compassion was your true nature or that you had Buddha nature or that it was already in you, maybe you've heard that, they say, oh, no, you're, it's already in you. I just didn't feel it, but the more that I practiced, the more that I practiced and the more the insights came and some kindness and some forgiveness, it is definitely familiar. It's like, oh, this was always here. This is not a practice of getting something new. It's uncovering something from within us. That in the beginning, it's like you have no access to it at all. It's so deeply buried, that lost city. It's really ruins and uh, there's no access to it. But the practice and each mindful breath is like this excavation, this scoop, this shovel. And you, sometimes you're doing your practice and it feels like this isn't working at all. I'm just digging, 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 and I'm never going to get there. But you're absolutely excavating a lost treasure. The wisdom and compassion that is the innate potential within all of us is accessed through these kind of introspective practices. And so you might feel like, oh, I'm just walking back and forth or I'm 
just sitting here breathing, nothing much is happening. But you're doing the heavy lifting, actually, that's going to get you. And later, um, there's, uh, you know, first there's the shoveling, and then there's the more, the finer instruments of, like, the brushes to dust off the heart and to dust off the mind and the clarity and seeing and understanding. But the practice is absolutely working. Like I said in the beginning, your day today was perfect, just as it was. Whether you liked it or didn't like it, don't worry about it. It was perfect. You're doing good work, hard work, getting closer and closer to uh, your true nature. These are some of my thoughts about the Buddha's Dharma, which is accessible to each one of us. I just again want to say how happy I'm, I am to be here with you and to help support you in your practice. I look forward to talking to half of you tomorrow and see how it's going. In the morning we'll have interviews. Half of you will meet with me. Half of you will meet with Wes tomorrow. And then the following day the other half of you will meet with me and the other half of you will meet with Wes. So you'll each see both of us. And we'll get a little time in small groups to talk about how it's going and what you're discovering and... You know, in any excavation, there's often the tra trash heaps, <laughs> the lost, you know, you start digging sometimes in the dump <laughs> instead of in the palace or something, and uh, you're uncovering all of that shit of your life. Uh, and it can be really smelly. <laughs> and it's good work, important work. So, thank you. <coughs> Just sit for a moment and I'll ring the bell and you'll have some time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.